It is Dr. Sarah Bingham today, rounding out our annual presentations of our senior graduating residents. We are last but not least. We have we are reaching we are reaching a, a culmination of that process as well. Um, a native of Essex County, New Jersey, uh, Dr. Bingham began her educational odyssey at Davidson College in North Carolina for her undergraduate degree as a Order of Omega and Alpha Epsilon Delta Pre-Medical Honor Society, returned home to the greater New York area for two years before going back to North Carolina for Wake Forest School of Medicine for her medical degree, spent three years here with us in northern New England as a resident since 2015, and is heading back to North Carolina to Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center for her fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine, uh, joining three and probably ultimately four of her colleagues in, in fellowship um, when um, Dr. Hartman probably will go after next year. So a rather scholarly class, and as with many of her colleagues, Dr. Bingham, who had already come to us with three publications to her credit prior to residency, will be presenting work that she's been doing and has already presented, some of which with uh, Drs. B and Dr. C, who are in the back row at the Pediatric Trauma Society Conference. So uh, we're going to not forget to pause. Welcome, Sarah. Some background on why it's important. Um, 
So every year, VX injuries count for almost $11 million, um, 11 million, sorry, ED visits annually. Um, and then following that physical trauma, what we don't necessarily study is the risk to the child later on to develop PTSD or even just post-traumatic stress symptoms. And that risk of developing, I think most of us would assume, is due to how severe their injury is. But a study um, done by Teresa et al. actually showed that it was the child's perception of the risk of death based on their own injury. It was a greater predictor of developing PTSD versus necessarily an injury severity score. And then actually the familial stress as well was a greater predictor. So if a parent felt stress, if a parent also developed PTSD, their child was more likely to develop PTSD following that injury. And it could be as simple as a leg fracture or a laceration on the face. It, it really didn't matter what the injury And so before we kind of go into more of the bones of the grand rounds, here we have to talk about what PTSD is first. Um, and so it's just a constellation of symptoms and psychological reactions to any traumatic experiences that have And so you have to have these three symptoms really to fit the diagnostic criteria. So you're re-experiencing the trauma, whether it's a sound, a, a scene, something that brings it back to the child. And then a general wanting to avoid that experience, so it creates negative reactions for the child. And then a change in arousal, so that impacting the child's ability to sleep, the child's ability to go to school, because they're so traumatized by the I thought I did. Now you can hear me. So in looking about how our children get hurt, um, looking across the x-axis, it's just in ages. I went all the way up, um, and then the y's number of occurrences. And so looking at, as we can imagine in our children that we see in clinic, large portion under four are getting injured, and then there's a later peak in later adolescence. And then looking at the injury severity score, so this is a score that's generated after an injury, um, looking at the body parts by injury and by severity as predictors for morbidity and mortality. And so the red line, which is very common in our pediatric population, um, would be any score from one to eight, and that would be a mild category of injury severity. And then the green line would represent more of a moderate category. And then anything obviously below that, the purple and the orange, would be more severe and more likely to have mortality from that injury. So we're fortunate that most of our injuries that our children are presenting to the ER are a, a mild injury, but they are frequent. So looking at the amount of cases, especially in that later adolescent population. And so why do they come to the emergency room? So looking at the mechanism of injuries. So in our under age four group, they're more likely to have falls that bring them to the injuries. I'm sure many of you that have had opportunities to rotate in the ER, even see these kids and follow up, starts with the story, I wasn't lucky and then my kid fell. Um, or my kid was riding their bike and then they fell. And then looking at our later adolescent population, that green line, green line demarcates any motor vehicle trauma. So our kids are starting to drive, and they're getting in accidents. And so just as we're getting settled in, I figured it would be a good exercise to share with you what you would probably have happen if you were working in the ER. Good morning, Mark. We'll see you. Tell me 
for you all to hear what it would sound like getting a call from a dispatch center. Um, and then we're going to keep coming back to this three-year-old. So kind of keep in mind, three-year-old, that's somnolent with the GCS of 15, and we'll go over kind of what that means. But as we know, we're a large state. We have over 26 hospitals in the state. And so he's coming from the Elliott, which is in this southeast region of uh, the state, and he's coming to us. And so I figured for pediatricians to know kind of why that's happening. So the Elliott is a level three trauma center and we're a level one adult and a level two pediatric trauma center. And so as we kind of go into why pediatric trauma is important, I figured telling you kind of what that really meant would be a good place to start. Um, so what kind of generates a trauma center? And so there's a two-step process, both at the state level and at the national level with the accreditation process of going through designating trauma centers based on certain criteria and then having to verify those trauma centers every three years typically to make sure that they're, they're maintaining those criteria to keep their level, level of care. And so levels can be anywhere from one to five. We're gonna focus on one through three. And then what do they mean? So looking at the top three levels. So level one trauma center is the highest um, level that you can be. And so typically they're admitting over 1,200 trauma patients per year. And of that, over 240 of those admissions have to have an injury severity score of over 15. And to really demarcate between a level two and a level one, they have to have in-house immediate coverage versus the immediate coverage here might not necessarily be trauma and general surgery, but they're at least accessible immediately. And then your subspecialties like orthopedics, neurosurgery, are in the level two center, are mostly available, but not necessarily in-house, versus a level three, they just have to get there within 30 minutes. That's really kind of how I felt like would simplify it um, for everyone. And so looking at the National Trauma Database, um, nationally there's 805 hospitals. Uh, 235 of those are level one centers. 33 of those are level one or level two pediatric only centers. And so as I mentioned previously, Dartmouth is a level one ATC and a level two PTC. So looking at where we live, there's three others in Northern New England. So there's EVM, there's us, and then there's Portland. And then obviously we know down here there's Massachusetts, so there's a bunch of level one trauma centers. And so for us, how do we become capable of caring for pediatric trauma? Uh, one, to be a level one pediatric trauma center, or at least level two, you have to admit at least 200 children under age 15 to a trauma service. Um, and then obviously, as we know, it's really important to have pediatric protocols. So you're caring for children in a way that's, that's right for their physiology and based on kind of them criteria-wise going to the PICU versus the pediatric floor, and obviously having that, knowing that the PICU is involved in those pediatric traumas and making those protocols as well. And so what's the, what, why do we care? Is there, is there a difference in my child going to an adult trauma center versus coming to a pediatric trauma center? Um, and so Walther et al. did a study um, looking at a bunch of centers and looked retrospectively at adolescents that were severely injured. So injury severity scores greater than 
15. And they noticed in children presenting to an adult trauma center compared to a pediatric trauma center, they were more likely to get pan scanned, so CT head, chest, abdomen, pelvis. And they were more likely to undergo laparotomy, ventriculostomy, craniotomy following a blunt trauma. And then just looking at their hospital stays, they were in the ICU longer, the hospital longer, and they were more likely to get discharged to a rehab center compared to children that went to pediatric trauma centers were more likely to be discharged directly home and stayed in the hospital less time. And in looking at kind of the imaging study, they were more likely to get ultrasounds done. And looking at the procedures, they were more likely to get an ICP monitor placed compared to a craniotomy. And then another study, a bunch of studies actually looking at state, statewide outcomes um, saw that there were 20% greater chance of mortality in, in a lot of the tra adult trauma centers compared to pediatric trauma centers. So as pediatricians, these are all numbers that we really care about. It's maybe unnecessary procedures, unnecessary radiation that we know can lead to detrimental outcomes in the future. So now let's circle back to our three-year-old. He's coming here in 10 minutes. If you're like me, your heart starts beating a little bit, like, okay, who, who do I have to call? What do I have to get organized? Is this kid going to come as billed? Um, who and what am I going to have ready in the room? And so I thought it would be interesting for us all to kind of go over what first. We know his GCS is 15, so what does that mean? So looking at the three main categories, so this is the uh, pediatric Glasgow coma scale. It's different, obviously, than adults because most of the time our kids can't necessarily answer in a consistent, reliable way, especially when they're an infant. So it's looking for any spontaneous action. So spontaneous eye opening all the way to no response, which would get you a GCS of one um, for the eye opening category. And then their best verbal response. So compared to an adult, it's just verbal response. This is the child's best ability to give you one based on their age. The first category is for the child. The second line is for the infant. And each GCS category has a score of 1 to 4, or 1 to 5, or 1 to 6, respectively. So the best you can do is a GCS of 15, which our child currently has. So now we're worried about, so who are we going to get ready? And so looking at, at Dartmouth system, we either have a trauma 9 activation, which is the equivalent of the trauma code at most centers, or a trauma alert. And once that's relayed to your pager, that signifies certain people to be present. And so I figured going through what each of those meant would be important. So trauma nine, I kind of highlighted what I felt like were the most important areas to kind of draw your attention to. So that child's unstable, which currently our child is stable, as we heard from their vitals. And then any other category below, so any respiratory distress. So if the child is intubated, if they're in shock, so they're maintaining fluids or pressors to maintain their vitals, and then a GCS less than eight automatically gets you a trauma nine activation. And then there's specific trauma injuries or the emergency medicine doctor's discretion to generate a trauma nine. <coughs> Versus a trauma alert, you'll see some differences. There's stable vital signs. Um, and then there's other delineations of mechanism of injury that would still get you a trauma alert versus just coming to the ED for a, a normal kind of evaluation in a regular ED bed by the emergency medicine team. So our child would come in as a trauma alert based on stable vital signs, but what I haven't told you obviously was his mechanism of injury or his injuries, which we didn't get from the dispatch. But assume he was in an ejection from a vehicle, but he's currently stable. So who's going to be there? So at Dartmouth, if you have a trauma alert, and in most places, this is typically the list that you'll get on the left. 
Those are still a lot of people. When you add that up, assuming ED nurses might mean two to four, depending on how much resources you need, um, you may have up to 12 to 13 people in the room waiting for this child. And then the folks on the right, it's a not all-inclusive list, but other subspecialties are aware that the patient is coming as well as the OR, but they would only come if requested by the uh, surgery team or the emergency team. So prior to him getting here, let's start getting prepared. What do we need to be having in the room? And so to start off with just reviewing for folks in the room of what really ATLS is. I think a lot of us learn PALS. Some of us learn NRP. And even some of us, as of myself, recently had to review ACLS. Figured we can learn one more. So this is an overview of what the trauma team does with any child that comes into the trauma bay. So there's the primary survey on the left, and then any resuscitative measures that need to be done emergently. And then there's a secondary survey that follows. And mostly that's the head-to-toe examination and then getting more of the medical history from either the family member, if they're present, um, or the child if they're able to share it with you. And so thinking about your ABCDE, which we'll circle back to later because we don't necessarily expose all of our children. Uh, so when I asked the emergency medicine residents what they wanted to do, they said, well, clearly my circulation airway breathing because you got to stabilize the patient. So circulation can be anything from are they well perfused? Are they in shock? Do they need blood products? What's my access? What am I going to do about my access? How quickly am I going to do these things? And so that's having all your supplies at the bedside. Airway, are they maintaining their airway? Do they have a C-collar in place? Do they need a breathing tube if they don't already have one? And what am I going to do about it? Is it going to be myself, the resident, or am I going to have anesthesia there or respiratory therapy there? And are they just naturally breathing, or is there any impairment in their breathing? Do they need a chest tube? Do they need a stat chest X-ray? My radiology tech, am I having them load a film in to do it right even before we move into the secondary survey? So all these things, it was very easy and natural for every resident to tell me, like, yep, I'm going to have all these things done and ready before the kid gets there, so I'm prepared. And that's really that organized chaos. We're organized knowing that we don't know what we're going to get, but it might be chaotic still. And so the initial goals of the primary survey is obviously to stabilize your patient, and then identify any injuries that are life-threatening that you need to just attain to right, right away. And then if you're at one of those level two or level three centers, like the Elliott, they identified that they might not be able to give the definitive treatment, so they need to send the child somewhere else. So that's that organizing transfer process. And so I think for all of us, or at least most of us, we've seen a trauma bay room. And this is one from Boston Children, so it's it's... It's crisp, it's clean, we all like it, we don't think that there's many germs. So for a child walking in there, it's, it's bright, it's big, there's no one there that they see or know. I don't see an iPad, I don't see child life, I don't see a lot of things that would make this room look less intimidating to a child. So what I didn't hear from a lot of people was, what's my pain plan? How am I going to try to make that room look less scary? Or how am I going to make the process feel less scary? And then if my family member shows up, what am I going to do with them? What's my plan? Am I going to have child life work with them? Am I going to have social work there, chaplain there? Am I going to have them at the head of the bed? There were a lot of questions that weren't really answered right off the bat. And I would argue that these are sometimes three of the most important questions that can really change how a child experiences their, their trauma um, experience. So now we're back in our trauma bay, back in 1C. 
waiting for our kid to get there. We all are dressed in our gowns and our masks and our gloves. And I couldn't tell you who's a nurse, who's, who's the respiratory therapist, and let alone when that kid rolls in there. It, it can be a very intimidating process. Before the child arrives, what you can't see in the picture is how noisy it can sometimes be. But typically, we do a very good job here of when the child enters, someone announces the child's coming in, and everyone gets very, very quiet. So I think overall, we do a nice job of being organized in advance with all that talking so that we can be really quiet when the child arrives. So now our kid is here, all hands-on to move the child. Um, and to review, this is a three-year-old um, who's intermittently somnolent but still has a GCS of 15. So he's, he's aware of what's going on, but we still need to move the patient in a very safe way, maintain your cervical spine, and maintaining that airway that we talked about was really, really important. And so as our trauma surgery resident starts going through that primary survey, we kind of confirm that the GCS is 15. And so then we all take a moment, and what do you think we're going to do next? We're going to pause, which is pretty awesome. So this um, protocol was first discussed really in April of 2016 with Dr. B and Dr. Reinhardt and Dr. Rettman in finding a way to make our kind of walkthrough of the patient care and integrate it into the primary and secondary survey to have the goal of making as, as stress-free of an environment as possible, making sure that we're approaching the child in a developmentally appropriate way and that we're minimizing pain and anxiety if we can. Excuse me. So you might have remembered me saying that with ATLS, we used to have E for exposure. So I thought that this was kind of an interesting graphic that this still exists. That's not what we do, uh, fortunately. Um, but I thought it was kind of interesting that that was such a part of trauma care for even children that that was still built into how you ran through your primary survey. So we no longer do this unless, of course, the patient's unstable. So looking at what the pause really is. Um, so one, we start up at the top with your primary survey, skipping the E. Um, and for our patient, he was deemed stable, so that GCS of greater than 15. If his GCS had been 8 or it was just deemed to be unstable in any way, you would have deferred the pause and gone straight to any emergent care. So if that was the OR, imaging, chest tube, anything, we kind of stopped there and went right to whatever we needed to do to stabilize the patient. But the nice part is the pause is implemented, as I mentioned, as the goal of minimizing stress, optimizing pain control, involving the family. And so the pause, we'll go through in a bigger slide, but goes through P is for pain and privacy. A is for anxiety and your IV access plan. Um, U, I kind of lump into any unnecessary procedure. So urinary catheter, rectal exam, um, or any genital exam, which used to also be a part of the trauma evaluation. And then S is for support from any family member. So if they're not present, then we'd have a staff member. And that could be chaplain, child life, a PICU team member, or even one of the emergency medicine um, nurses or RTs. And then last but most important, explain to the patient. And that, for us, seems really easy because we work with kids every day of how to speak to a 5-year-old is very different than how we speak to a 15-year-old. But this really emphasizes the importance of acknowledging the patient's age and explaining it in a way that they can understand. And then once you're done, hopefully this all takes under two minutes is the goal, um, you would go on to your secondary survey. So that's that head-to-toe exam, and then decide what imaging or what procedures might need to be done before you figure out where is the patient going. So a little bit bigger of a graphic, since I realized the first one was a little bit small. 
So we'll now go through each part of the pause and why each part was really implemented as a part of the protocol uh, for patient care in the trauma bay. So pain and privacy is where we'll start. So in a study that Todd et al. did, they looked at um, over 842 pediatric patients that came into an emergency department. So it wasn't necessarily just trauma patients, and they only used children aged greater than eight. And they surveyed them at the start of the ED visit and throughout up until when they left uh, the department. And they found that 83% of those patients actually had their pain assessed. So whether that was a question that the family felt was, was a parent that was asked or asked to look at one of those pain rating scales. Of those 83%, only 60% actually received analgesics. And then 14% had their pain reassessed at some point during their ED stay. The time it took them to get pain medicine was on average 90 minutes. And at a time of discharge, 74% still said that their pain was moderate to severe. I thought that those were pretty impressive numbers considering that pain can really make, make your experience miserable. And so then we dove a little bit deeper of does age play a factor? Um, and so Alexander et al. in 2003 they also looked at a group of um, patients going to the emergency department. They divided them by age. So their very young population was anyone under age two, and then the school age was anyone five to 15. And what they did was they looked at, did they receive pain medicine? What pain medicine did they receive when they got it? And so out of 180 total patients, 96 were very young and 84 were the school age population. And so looking at fractures versus all injuries, the younger children were more likely to receive no pain medicine during their emergency uh, stay compared to the older child population. And then if they did receive pain medicine, the school age group was more likely to receive a narcotic than compared to the very young population. So overall, kind of an interesting correlation between age and pain medicine. And so I'm looking at what medicines were given. So the very top left is the most common. So Morphine was used 20% of the time. And then ibuprofen, hydrocodone, oxycodone were in kind of the teens, so 12% to 17% of administration. And then I highlighted fentanyl in that this study was done in 2007. And more commonly now in our emergency department, we're using fentanyl, and it's actually a part of a protocol that the nurse can activate for pain, pain control in our emergency department. And so kind of drawing your attention to you know, the difference between 2007 and 2018, you know, we're one coming into more of an opiate epidemic, and so were parents more resistant to using any type of narcotic? Were we as providers more resistant to using it for fear of the addiction, the stigma? Um, and so now we're using fentanyl more often because we see that it is safer in acute injuries for children and it's not going to have them have an issue after discharge. And so another thing that I kind of saw in, in doing my research was this quote that came up in a few, few papers, older papers, of theories for why children weren't treated the same, and this perception that children do not feel the same type of pain that adults do. And so back in the day for <coughs> circumcisions, children didn't receive pain medicine because they were a baby and they didn't say that they felt pain. And actually studies have shown that with recurrent um, pain type stimulations or procedures, they have a heightened response and that comes with their heart rate and their just general approach to coming to the doctor's office. So I think now we've become much better at realizing we just maybe weren't good at asking. 
And so it wasn't necessarily that they don't feel the same way as adults do. They just might not be able to vocalize how they feel pain. And so some of the frequent barriers that I've seen in my work in the emergency department or even just doing literature was how do we assess pain in that younger age group that might not be able to verbalize for themselves, like our teenage population. And then I think less, less so is this fear of respiratory depression or sedation because we work in a pediatric hospital, so we feel familiar with the dosages. But I think that those two kind of go hand in hand of how comfortable do you feel prescribing a pain medicine when you might not necessarily be in front of a Harriet Lane to tell you what dose. Um, and so if you're in the trauma bay, it's relying on having someone like a PICU staff member, uh, any of our trauma surgeons, or even our ED staff know feel very comfortable with prescribing pain medicines to our children. And then this family concern, I think, still plays a role. Um, very often, parents don't want a narcotic given to their children, either due to family history or just what they see in the news. So I think that that's a big barrier to how we're treating kids. And so I kind of highlighted to the first of adequate assessment tools. So as you know, there's a lot of different ways that we assess pain, especially in this younger age group. We're relying on their vocalizations and then just their physical behavior. And so there's a bunch of different pain scores. So this is the Alder Hay triage pain score that was implemented for any preverbal child up until their teenage year of trying to make a consistent scoring pattern, relying on their facial expression, were they crying or not, what their posture and body movement was, and then were they pale? I'm not sure I would have known how to say, was it they were they normal color, pale, or very pale? Um, and then looking at the flack is something that we use a lot on the inpatient service. Same thing, using kind of their body language, their cry, how consolable were they to be able to generate a more consistent scoring pattern to generate what type of pain were they incurring. And then another scale, the visual analog scale, I haven't seen this one as often, but was validated to be used in children. And so using either colors or just their general perception of how their experience was going, it's a way to say, were they in pain or not? And then what we use in the emergency department very often, and you'll also see on the inpatient, is the faces. So which face one could you relate your child to? So were they crying? The newer faces has actually gotten rid of the tears, so they felt that it was too pressing for someone to say, oh, the kid's not crying, so they can't be in that much pain? Um, or are they smiling and generally in a good mood, and that must mean that they're not in a lot of pain? And then obviously for our teenage population, we might ask them, what's your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? And so this is what we've been using more commonly here as a way to measure pain. And then to the privacy perspective of the, of the pause, uh, a study uh, that Bryant et al. did was looking at surveying adolescents moving forward, and they rated their largest stressor was exposure and feeling like they were kind of out in the open. And so looking at a trauma bay like this, you not only are having a lot of people around you, but you're hearing your neighbor. So in our trauma bay, we have three beds divided by a little panel, but you're going to hear your neighbor, and that can be also a stressor for our kids and how they um, go through the trauma bay process. So anxiety and access as our A. So anxiety, so a bunch of studies have looked at what symptoms predict children to develop PTS. And as I mentioned earlier, it's this appraisal of threat to, to life that can happen with really any injury severity score. It's all based on how the child perceives that injury and, and their experience in the trauma bay. And then obviously endorsing anxiety symptoms, which we can sometimes elicit by asking, 
but very often we just have to engage in the child to minimize those anxiety symptoms from de developing. And then obviously witnessing um, any injury. So a lot of our children that come in either with a sibling that's been injured or a family member that's been injured, they have a heightened sense of fear that also predisposes them to developing PTS. So these are all ways that we're trying to engage our child right in the trauma bay to minimize those feelings. And so then our IV access. So one, do we need two large bore IVs in every kid that comes into the trauma bay? Probably not. Um, how many attempts are we gonna make before we say, yes, we need an IO versus no, the child's probably stable, let's not do an IO. Because we know just this attempt alone, you're holding a kid's arm down some of the times. And that is also stressful, it's pain. So if we're not numbing the area, is that, is that necessary at that time? So unnecessary procedures. I'm sure all of us can imagine that if someone needed to do a urinary catheter or rectal exam on us wide awake, we'd probably say, okay, like maybe not, let's not. Um, and so a part of the previous trauma um, pathway was every kid got a Foley, every kid got a rectal exam. And now the, the move is towards if it's a stable patient without a spine injury, you can defer a potentially traumatizing, painful, and an unnecessary procedure to try to optimize the experiments. And so support so from family and staff, so I really want to focus here. So family members, previous literature um, of having family members at the head of the bed, so mom. Um, there was a lot of resistance initially because clinicians either feared that the parent would be too anxious, too emotional, or might interfere with their ability to do their job. Um, newer literature has been coming out in the 2000s to 2010s where families that are offered the opportunity to be at the head of bed or even in the room with CPR being done, families 90% of the time or greater would opt to be in the room, and families that actually witnessed CPR being done would still actually ask to be a part of it in the future if they had to go through it again. Um, and so this study by Keppel et al. from a journal of child psychology actually looked at parents that went through CPR or any trauma injury to their, to their child were less likely to develop post-traumatic stress after the trauma, um, trauma bay, and the children themselves were also less likely to develop PTS if their parents were less likely. So it shows a relationship between the parent's level of stress and the child's ultimate um, risk of developing post-traumatic stress. And then Bordeaux et al. also looked at involving the family members and that now family members at the bedside do not interfere with the clinician's ability to do procedures and doesn't actually set them up for an unsuccessful attempt. So they're actually beneficial to be at the bedside. And so for us, we get a lot of patients that come from other places. So we might not necessarily have a family member right when the patient gets there. So that's having a staff member. So Zemsky et al. looked at in 2000 of non-pharmacological ways to minimize anxiety, and that was really using child life. And child life, RNs, any staff member that was available to distract a child, child still looks pretty unhappy about their IV attempt. <laughs> but looking at ways to try to engage the kid in something that will bring their attention away from what's going on, whether that's using the iPad, using games, using the little twirly thing that I still love to use every time I have a kid. Or even there was one night I played YouTube videos and went through all the Disney movies and it was a success. And the trauma surgeon said, so how long are you free? <laughs> all night if you need me. So it really does um, help the child to have a less stressful experience. 
And so now, as I mentioned earlier, most important to explain what's going on. And so that's either demonstrating on the stuffy, and that's either being at the head of the bed and using very quiet but specific language of what's about to happen. Because as you know, we haven't even started the secondary survey. And sometimes that head-to-toe exam, you do have to expose certain parts of the body to be able to assess a full skin exam. And so that's explaining to the child what's about to happen, what imaging might be done, any procedure that might be done can really help minimize any anxiety about that process happening, especially while waiting for a parent to arrive. So now that you know a little bit more about the pods, and hopefully you guys are all going to be as in love with pods as I am, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the research that we've done so far since its implementation in October of 2016. Um, and so... We'll go through kind of the primary study and all the future aims after that. So my initial study that we organized with Dr. Rutman and Dr. Bart Chagger was to look at whether or not the pediatric pause impacted any element of patient care, which for this initial study, we looked at time to imaging and time to disposition as a potential um, uh, focus for what might be patient care, so if we were to delay it or not. So we hypothesized that patients undergoing the pause versus patients not undergoing the pause should have no significant delay in their time to first imaging or time to disposition. So our methods, we retrospectively did a chart review of three uh, comparable time periods. So two pre-pause and then one after the pause was implemented and looked at time to disposition, time to first radiograph, and time to first CT scan for all patients either undergoing the pause or not undergoing the pause. And disposition we included as operating room, PICU, pediatric floor, or home. So of those three groups, we identified 172 patients that were eligible. The average age was 11. The average injury severity score was also 11. 88% um, of those came in as trauma alerts, and 12% of those patients were trauma nines. And of the total 172, 47 patients were eligible to undergo the pause. So, not uncommon to what we'd all imagine. More, more of our population was male, so 65%. We obviously live in the Upper Valley, so 91% of our patients were Caucasian. And then where did our patients come from? So, as, as we alluded to earlier, we're the only level one adult and level two pediatric center in New Hampshire, and then one of three in northern New England. So, 69% came from an outside hospital. And of those patients, 89% came with imaging prior to their arrival. And that included anywhere from radiographs to CTs. So hopefully I've pictured this kid in your mind, because this is who I think of that's going to be coming in. So a teenage boy riding an ATV, but at least he's wearing his helmet. Dr. Bauer would be happy. So I'm looking at our results. So first we'll go over the disposition. So looking across your x-axis, we had the disposition by discharge to home, OR, pediatric floor, or the PICU, and then our y-axis is time in minutes. Um, the pause group is the red bars, and the no pause group is in blue. And so overall, there was no impact except in the group that was getting admitted to the PICU. There was a significantly um, longer time to admission from the ED for the children that underwent the pause. And when we looked at this kind of data, we're assuming, obviously, red means that they were stable. So they were stable children that underwent the pediatric pause. So were they more likely to need a picky bed right off the bat? 
Um, so that's kind of how we justify why they potentially stay in the emergency room longer, was that their care wasn't actually delayed, it was just their location changed. But overall, as you can see, our ends were still small in some of the populations, which is why they still look a little bit delayed compared to the no-pause group. But I think if we had larger numbers, these would actually level out. And then looking at discharge by age to see if there is an impact of our populations, just developmental stages on, on whether or not they were discharged faster or slower. And so in our under two group, we only had one patient, so he is a little bit of an outlier. Um, and we hypothesized since parents typically are behind the transport team, this child went home, and so were we waiting for mom and dad to arrive to bring the child home as a potential since he was stable and underwent the pause. In our middle age group, so age 2 to 14, um, there was a significant delay in the pediatric pause group to discharge, and then there was no change in our older teenage group. And so in thinking about this population, you know, this is the first year the pause is really implemented, and whether or not we were still getting more and more familiar with working with that younger age group, and now we're just getting faster and faster at doing the pause and all those necessary steps. So I think if we were to do data now, this would also start to normalize. And then looking at the first radiograph, so typically when our children do need imaging, we typically do the chest and the pelvis. Our C-spine uh, is typically a part of our CT head protocol, and often almost up to 50% of these children already came with a CT head and C-spine. So to have gone back and done a cervical spine x-ray was either because we're trying to, to clear or when our radiologist looked at it, they needed different films. So that was to account for this delay in the pediatric pause group. And then looking at time to our first CT scan. Um, so the CT study across your x-axis and then across the y is still the, the, the time in minutes. Um, and so similarly, the pause versus the no pause group had no statistically significant difference except for this CT abdomen group, which was longer. Um, and so in looking at this group as well, they did come already with imaging prior to arriving to Dartmouth. Also, I would make an argument that this is a stable population and that did we actually take the time to weigh the benefits of re-radiating a child, and that might have accounted for that delay. Or was there a clinical change in the patient? So they arrived stable, and then was there a change in their exam, a change in their demeanor that necessitated doing a CT later than in this more critical group that had it done earlier as a part of their initial workup. So in summary... The pause does not significantly delay time to first imaging for most studies. So in looking at kind of the overall, time to first x-ray across the group was around 17 minutes, and the pediatric pause group was on average 23 minutes, so not significantly different. And then in looking at the disposition, it really was with the exception of admitting to the PICU that there was no delay in using the pediatric pause. And then what we can't fully explain as of right now is that this age-related delay in that middle age group. And it may be that if we teased out more of the 2 to 7 and like 7 to 12, we might see more of a, a range there. Um, and then overall, the, the pause is safe and well-received by our patients, families, and really our staff members. We have a lot of engagement with our trauma surgery team, our PICU staff, our ED staff, and obviously all of you guys, hopefully after the end of this talk, that it really does improve patients' experience in coming to the trauma bay. And so obviously our limitations, as I point out at the top of our bar graphs, we have small groups that went through the pause, and not all of them 
underwent imaging, not all of them went to the OR. So as we continue to gather data, we should hopefully start to see some tightening of those bars. Um, a large percentage of our patients already came with outside imaging, so how do we factor that into why they either got re-imaged or why that delayed certain workups? And then a large percentage of our patients arrived without parents. So in looking at the ED time to discharge, we were waiting for many parents to arrive to the ED trauma bay to be either be able to take those patients home, which was a limiting factor. And then we suggested that the imaging disposition is a measure of pediatric outcome, but we didn't actually measure did this impact the care that they received. So I think it's really important to hear from our families. Um, we've received letters. I've heard from patient, patients' parents, even in the trauma bay, just like how happy they were that they were there. Um, they felt like everything was very calm because we now have a protocol that everyone does it the same way. Um, so I thought it was kind of fun to share some quotes that we got through Child Life and, and through letters. And then to draw attention to this pre-pause, and I even witnessed this the other weekend um, in that a patient was had their clothes removed. Like, I don't, I don't understand it. I can take them off myself. Like, I just, they were so distraught by someone trying to cut their clothes off that the, it was more alarming to them than necessarily maybe their long bone fracture. So I think it's interesting to see kind of that language prior to the pause's implementation. And so then looking at future directions for the pause of what we might be able to do um, with the next round of data, and so I'm really, you know, invested in this minimizing the post-traumatic stress and in looking at what people have already started to do of what kind of research can you implement. Are you doing surveys? Are you following these patients prospectively? Are we engaging our primary care um, colleagues to give us that feedback of, hey, how's the kid doing one month out? Or how's the kid doing at six months? Have you noticed any changes in how they, you know, behave at school or at home? Um, so I think that that's a future direction, probably starting with surveys, but how, how do we measure, measure that? And how often should we measure it? And so then in thinking about when should we ask the families? Do we ask them in the trauma bay? Do we ask them when they're in the PICU? Do we call them a month later and hope they answer the, answer the phone and talk to us about what they thought, thought about the pediatric pause? So I think that that would be a really interesting next step is how do we engage the families? And then does this actually impact outcomes? Um, which I think will be a trickier question to answer. I, of course, as an advocate of the pause, would say absolutely not. Um, if anything, it makes them have a more positive, more calm, and a better pain experience in the trauma bay, but that is a question that obviously will need to be answered probably moving forward. So overall, I want to thank a lot of people in the room. Obviously, all you guys for listening, people that aren't in the room, like my family, um, and then everyone on the left, Sean Hooks, gave me that wonderful dispatch clip. So thank him if you see him. And then obviously the dogs. <laughs> so anyone has any questions? Just a few. Okay. You get to go first.
differences in the outcomes that we really care about. So right. start early, start often. So gather, I mean, before, because we all believe in the pause. So you don't really want to delay <clears throat> starting it to gather a bunch of information, but to really look at outcomes for PTSD, which is probably your major mm -hmm. outcome. Um, but break it down, like you could look at, um, Look at time to first pain medicine or time yeah. to pain control. Smaller things that we can okay, really make an easy jump. That time to first pain medication probably is, is going to be better pain control. Right. So take take some bites out of that. But um, if you really want to look at PTSD, you're going to have to organize that really early before you start the pause. Get lots of numbers because again, there's going to be an enormous confounders for what goes into development of PTSD. Right. Um, but it, it's a it is potentially. Would, would try, it's really like, like, like Lisey, wouldn't you suggest a multi-center and yeah, you collaborative have to, and probably randomizing by site? Because you have some control for that. Yeah. Story. You right. absolutely have to randomize by site because you would never be able to avoid the Hawthorne. But you would, you would need some preliminary information before you just, like, before you get multi-center trial. But that would be, it also wouldn't be an expensive trial. Mm -hmm. There would be small support for data entry. Um, but there's, it's not, you don't need materials, you don't need big expensive drugs, you don't need, it's stuff we're doing Already. anyway, we're just hoping to do it better. Right. Yeah. I think one of the goals was to prove safety, mm -hmm. so that's why we took the time to x-ray, which is, if it's the same, we're not changing the protocol. Yeah. We're, like, doing only on kids who are stable, we're not changing the protocol, so mm -hmm. that's why I think the first preliminary study was safety first. Mm -hmm. And once we can show that it's the same time, that the outcome are similar except for these time frames where, again, as you said, there's so many co-founders, access to the CT scan, access to a PQ band, I think is, is our co-founders. So I think that yeah. the time from first chest x-ray, head CT, or pelvic uh, x-ray is the same. So. Right. And you have to pull out the numbers. You would want to pull out the numbers of kids that have the same measures of injury severity because obviously the ones with, with a lot of severity are going to get their scans faster mm -hmm. and are also not getting a pause because they, they, they don't fulfill the criteria. But that makes your numbers really small. Right. Yeah. Um, a follow-up question, but first, before I have my follow-up question, I just want to publicly thank our conference services people, Rick and his team, because they come to all of the residents' dress rehearsals at 5 p.m. and 6 p.m. at 2 in the afternoon. So all the residents do multiple dress rehearsals with them, and they come early every morning um, that the residents are here to help them set up. So publicly thank them if you see them, because they really make this uh, work for all the residents. But my follow-up question is similar to what Shalene had. There's so many co-founders. We're obviously a small institution, mm -hmm. smaller numbers. Has the pause been implemented and studied in other level one pediatric trauma centers, whether or not it's a CHOP or a Boston or someplace yeah. like that? And so the interesting part that you bring that up is during my fellowship interviews, I obviously was asked a lot about the pause. And so I'd flip it back on them. And I said, well, what do you do? Like, what's your protocol? Like, well, we're a children's hospital. So we just feel like we naturally do it. So they, you know, there's not another protocol anywhere else that I've found so far that does it the way that we do it. Because um, they just feel like they naturally already try to minimize anxiety and pain control because they're all pediatric attendings, pediatric nurses, pediatric RTs. Um, so I think it's an interesting way to take it and to try and engage them to see if they would formalize it more to help with the volume. We have to publish it. I like to do this. Yeah. <laughs> Then, like, I always joke when I trained in, in Indianapolis, we had A, B, C, and C was for coloring book. <laughs> but in some children's hospital, you actually have the child life specialist there before the trauma surgeon. It's good and bad, depending on how stable the patient is. <laughs> <laughs> we will also look 
for an update in three years on, on your work. Thank you for that.